This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Today we're chatting with Dr Rachel Carey, a researcher and lecturer on food systems at the University of Melbourne. In this episode, Rachel provides insight into the importance of Melbourne's food bowl, how and why we need to increase its resilience, and shed some light on examples of where this is being done around the world. I'm joined for one last time by my colleague, James. It's been a pleasure having you on. It's great to have been a part of the show, Annie. Let's jump in. Well, thanks for joining us today, Rachel. Thank you. It's very great to be here. So you've got a slightly different connection to agriculture than maybe some of our other guests that we have on. So how do you see yourself connected to agriculture? Well, I'm somebody who focuses on food systems. So that's the big picture of everything in terms of how food gets from the farm to the fork. So everything that happens to get our food to us. So obviously, agriculture is a hugely important role in that. Certainly we wouldn't be eating anything without agriculture. So look, I do focus on agriculture, but really it's about the big picture of where agriculture fits in with our food system and just how important that is. And I think sometimes we can definitely forget that. I think sometimes those of us who are eaters that haven't grown up on a farm don't always realise everything that goes into producing food and just the impacts that issues like climate change are having currently in relation to agriculture. As some people may tell from your first answer, you're not originally from Australia. So how did you end up in Australia? Can you tell us about that? Yes, so I'm from the UK originally. I'm from the north of England and I actually first came to Australia as a backpacker back in 1990, so a long time ago now. So I came on one of the 12-month visas and I travelled and I worked. And I actually worked up on a couple of cattle stations up in Queensland. So I guess that was my first experience of farming here in Australia. Very, very different experience given that I come from a fairly small place in the north of England and certainly hadn't thought at all before that what farming over here might look like. And was, of course, hugely surprised at just the vast size of the farms that I was working on and how relatively isolated they were for me coming from the north of England. So after you finished your gap year, you went back to the UK and have eventually found yourself back in Australia working for the University of Melbourne. Can you tell us about your current role? Yes, so my current role, I'm a senior lecturer in food systems, and that means that I do everything from research. Um, Obviously, my research focuses particularly on sustainable and resilient food systems and particularly in relation to Melbourne's food bowl, but I also do a lot of teaching. So I teach students in relation to how it is that we can promote sustainable, healthy, resilient and equitable food systems and have a a really wide range of things that I do within that and really love it. Very passionate foodie. I'm curious, you first came out on your gap year and then you ended up back here working and I assume for what's been quite some time now what was it that brought you back to Australia after that first year here? Oh gosh a whole lot of different things so after I was first over here I obviously uh, I really loved the country felt like it was somewhere that I could come back and live later on so I did after I got back and did some more studies I did start looking for jobs over here and as it happened I found a job that was in Melbourne 
And around the same time, I actually met somebody who was also from Melbourne. And so that all obviously all worked out pretty well. And then we came back and have been here ever since, apart from a fairly short stint. We went back to the UK for a few years early on. But otherwise, yeah, I've been based in Melbourne for, I guess, must be 25 years plus now. You touched on earlier about how a lot of your work is focused around Melbourne's food bowl. Can you tell us about Melbourne's food bowl and the important role that it plays in supplying fresh food to Melburnians? Mm, sure. So yes, a lot of my work is focused on Melbourne's food bowl. So when I came over here, one of the things I really noticed about Melbourne very early on was just how fantastic the food is. You know, it's a really foodie city, great restaurants, markets, and then sort of began to realise how connected that is, in fact, to the huge range of fresh produce that grows around the city. And that that's a really important part of why Melbourne is such a foodie city. It's the quality of the food that's produced in the area. And so I started thinking about that a lot more. I started going to farmers markets when they first appeared in Melbourne and was just blown away by the quality of produce that I was seeing that, of course, had been just picked the day before, but also starting to notice that there were some issues with that supply. And I particularly became aware of that actually during during the millennium drought, which was obviously some time ago for us now, but I would be going to the farmer's markets and I would at times just see empty spaces where farmer stalls used to be and signs, uh, some of those signs just saying run out of water. And so becoming aware that there were issues with our fresh food supply and that it may not necessarily be always there in the future the way that we wanted it to. I'm really feeling, I had a young family at the time, really feeling that I strongly wanted to ensure that my children, their children, had access to this incredible fresh produce. started thinking about that. What were the issues? And I guess it started to become clear that not only were there issues with water supply for farmers around the city, there were also, of course, issues with, with the availability of land, given how quickly the city was growing and that, of course, much of that growth was happening on former farmland. And so we began this project, the Foodprint Melbourne project, which was really about identifying at that point just what it was that was growing around the city, where it was growing, and to what extent that produce was at risk. So when I talk about Melbourne's food bowl, I'm talking about the area that is about 100 kilometres from the city centre into peri-urban rings around the fringe of the city. And it would include places that people might be familiar with, like the Yarra Valley in the Mornington Peninsula, Shire, places like Wyndham. People may not be so familiar with Wyndham, but actually it's very important in terms of growing vegetables, just 30 kilometres from the city. And then thinking further out to places like Bacchus Marsh, etc. They're all part of what we think of as being Melbourne's food bowl. And we were really surprised to find just how much food was still growing in that area. So we discovered that that area of Melbourne's food bowl was growing still almost half of the vegetables that are produced in the state, including a really high proportion of some types of vegetables, particularly the highly perishable sorts of vegetables. So we're thinking about things like salad greens and leaves and broccoli, all those sorts of things, and also quite a high proportion of fruit, particularly perishable fruits like berries. And we also discovered that certain areas of Melbourne's food bowl were really important for growing certain types of fruits and vegetables because they happen to have the ideal soil conditions or ideal climate for growing those things. And so we discovered that this area actually had the capacity, this is back in 2015, it had the capacity to produce around 41% of the food needs for Greater Melbourne. We were quite stunned by that because we hadn't realised, in fact, just 
how much food was still growing in that area. But we also, of course, discovered through that research that that area of important food production was actually really at risk. So when you talk about it being at risk, there's an obvious need for Melbourne's food bowl to be protected. What are some of those things that we can be doing to protect Melbourne's food bowl? The risk, of course, particularly is to development of what's hardy fertile farmland often, that development for urban purposes on that land. There's a lot of a few different things that we need to do in order to ensure that land is actually protected for the future for food production. One of them is just to create certainty about what the future uses of that land are. So we do already have legislation in place to protect that land. We have an urban growth boundary that should be a fixed urban growth boundary, but it's not. You know, we've been expanding that urban growth boundary a number of times. We need to ensure that that's actually a fixed urban growth boundary. We need to ensure that there is stronger protection for the farmland in those peri-urban areas, including in Melbourne's green wedges. So we have been asking for stronger protections for those areas of farmland, but that's not going to be enough because there's no point in protecting the land if farmers don't want to farm in those areas anymore. So we have to ensure that it's viable for farmers to farm in those areas. So we're actually actively supporting farmers in those areas. And we also need, of course, to ensure they've got sufficient water access because we are in a warming and drying climate. We know that we're likely to have less water available in future. We need to secure that water. But of course, we have some benefits of farming close to the city. And one of those is the access to important streams of waste, including wastewater, which can be recycled and used to produce food. So we really need to ensure in future that we are making sure that farmers have good access to recycled water and certainty about the future of those areas as areas where farming takes place. And when you were talking about the protection of farmland, there seems to be a balance that needs to be found between protection of that farmland alongside that urban growth. Can the resilience of Melbourne's food bowl still be maintained or grown as urban growth still continues on? Yeah, absolutely it can. I mean, I think that obviously we understand that Melbourne is growing and will grow, although I would say that we have to be very careful about how we grow because, of course, there are other issues that come with sprawling further and further outside the city beyond simply the farmland. But I think the key thing is here, we need to decide where we're going to grow and to ensure that we're not growing into those areas of key farmland. It just doesn't make sense anymore. The first thing, of course, is to be clear where those areas of farmland are. So we need really good mapping where, of where all the fertile farmland is around the fringes of the city. And so it's clear that we're not going to grow into those areas. Now, in terms of whether or not a city's urban growth boundary needs to expand, then it's fairly common understanding that we have at least 30 years supply of land currently within the urban growth boundary. And so there shouldn't be any need to be moving that boundary further out. But if we do reach a time where we need to think about shifting that urban growth boundary at all, hopefully we don't. But if we were ever to reach that point, then it should be fairly clear that we are not going to grow into those areas of highly fertile farmland. Thinking about some other risks to the food bowl, over the past few years, there have probably been a few shocks, I would assume, in the form of natural disasters and then even COVID. How has that impacted Melbourne's food bowl? Yeah, so that's, of course, really important for us to be thinking about now. We've all, I think, become more aware of the way that our food system can be impacted by shocks and stresses. I mean, for many people, 
I guess the COVID pandemic would have been the first time they've gone to the supermarket and actually found those shelves empty or not being able to buy what they wanted when they wanted to buy it. And so I think that's been a bit of a wake up call. And of course, in Melbourne, we've experienced that as well as anywhere else. And, and to some degree, perhaps experienced that more acutely than some places, given the nature of the lockdowns that we had and how long we spent in lockdown. That, of course, had effects throughout the food system. Everything from production farmers who suddenly found that they couldn't sell into cafes and restaurants, lost their markets and then had to plough those vegetables back into the soil through to farmers who during the Omicron wave then haven't been able to find enough labour just to pick the crops. So we've had issues on production, but issues right the way through the food supply chain. Of course, we had many issues around Melbourne in meat processing plants, as an example, which, of course, were particularly hit by COVID cases and where, through the state government, um, restrictions that were introduced had their capacity reduced. So all sorts of issues through COVID and also, of course, issues in relation to just climate shocks that we've been experiencing. And, uh, of course, um, here in our state, we saw that with the bushfires early in 2020, which had, a, had an impact through quite a lot of the east of the state. Again, lots of losses of crops and livestock, but also things like roads being closed, which meant that food trucks had to find new routes, took longer to get into markets. And I think one of the things that we've discovered through these different shocks is that the food system is vulnerable in different ways. So one of the ways in which it's vulnerable, I think we've discovered, is these long and quite complex just-in-time food supply chains. I guess the longer these supply chains are, the more complex they are, the more points they have where things can go wrong. And I think we've discovered that really through both COVID and the climate shocks we've been experiencing. And I guess we have to recognise that we're likely to experience a whole range of different shocks in the future. And we're likely to have more frequent and more severe drought but also more variable rainfall. So in fact, perhaps more frequent and more severe flooding as well. And of course, more fire weather. So we really got to start to ensure that we're building that the resilience of the city's food system to a whole range of different shocks and stresses and taking actions that are going to build the long-term resilience of the city's food system, no matter what the shock or stress is that we find ourselves facing next. Because as we've seen, we can face all types of shocks and stresses. Of course, the current war that's happening in Ukraine has also been a shock to the food system, I think, as we're realising with grain prices going up, food prices going up around the world. So Melbourne will be affected by that just as anywhere else is. And when we're talking about the resilience of our food system, what are some things that we as consumers can be doing to increase that resilience and to help out our farmers? One of the first things, of course, is to try to buy from local farmers where we can. So if we want farmers to be continuing to farm around the fringes of Melbourne, then we need to ensure that we're supporting them by buying food from them. And that, of course, can be quite difficult unless you're at a farmer's market to identify where food has come from. So perhaps you know, what's one of the things we could talk about is how could we make that easier for people? I think another thing is just to be asking questions about where your food comes from. So to be asking those questions of the grocers that you go into or the supermarkets that you buy food in and to be recognising that there's obviously, particularly in the moment in relation to rising cost of living, you know, food prices is something that we're all really concerned about. 
and people will be hit quite hard by rising food prices. And we need to find ways of addressing that, and particularly ensuring that those people on low incomes are able to afford to buy sufficient healthy food. But we need to do that in ways that also ensure that farmers earn a viable living and that workers throughout the food system are also paid appropriately. It's also about us understanding a bit more what goes into buying our food and that we might want to have food available that's affordable, but if we're buying a dollar milk, then we need to ask ourselves whether that's really at a price that is viable for farmers, for them to be able to continue farming and for them to have appropriate livelihoods as well. So I think it's really about, as consumers, asking more questions about where our food comes from, how that food's been produced, and trying to support local farmers where we can by ensuring that we're buying our food from them. Keeping the consumer in mind, what are some of the unhelpful narratives that we need to be mindful of as consumers? One of those unhelpful narratives I think we have in Australia at the moment is that we're a food secure country, that we produce more than enough food. And I think we have this narrative because we export quite a lot of food. So there's a narrative that goes, we produce enough food for at least 60 million people. And therefore, we don't have to worry about where our food comes from or various shocks that might affect the food system because we're food secure. And I think that we need to unpack that a bit more. I think actually, during COVID, people have probably um, seen for themselves that the food system isn't as secure as that might suggest. It's about more than how much food we're producing. It's about what types of foods we're producing, thinking about producing foods that support a healthy diet as well. In fact, if we were all to eat the amounts of fruits and vegetables that were recommended to eat, then we probably actually wouldn't be growing enough fruit and vegetables here. We would have to grow more. I think this narrative that we're actually a food secure country, we need to unpack a lot more. And of course, although we produce a lot of food, there's many people that cannot afford and don't have access to enough food. There's over a million people in the country at any one time that cannot afford to buy enough food and that run out. And so we've got to ask ourselves, does that make us a food secure country? I would argue not. For me, that's a key narrative about our food system that we really want to unpack and look a bit harder at. So we've talked about Melbourne's food bowl and there's still obviously some work we need to do both from the government side of things, from the farming side of things and also from consumers. But there are some countries and some overseas cities that are doing this really well. Who are they and what are they doing? There are, I think, a number of cities around the world that we could look to in terms of the actions that they're taking to protect their city food bowls and to ensure that they've got secure sources of fresh, healthy food around the city. So some of the cities that I would point to are some of the cities, Canada, cities like Toronto and Vancouver, and also Portland in the west of the United States. Some of the key things about each of those cities is that they have taken action firstly to protect the food producing areas around those cities, the farmland around the cities, and to be really clear that those areas are going to stay in food production for the long term. So that gives certainty to farmers in those areas. When you've got certainty, you can invest, you can start to invest in your farm. And also it means that government can invest. So you can invest in things like secure water access. These are very long-term assets, so 50 years plus that you're planning for them and you need to know that those areas are going to be in food production for the long term. So 
creating that certainty through strong government policy is really important. But the other thing that I think these cities have done well is to really create the sort of culture where residents of the cities understand how important those areas are to food production, to their food supply. And they do that in different ways. So if we take a city like Toronto, which has a green belt surrounding it, a bit like our green wedges, then they encourage people to go out into those green belt areas. So they do that through things like signage. So if you go out into the green belt areas around Toronto, you're going to see signs that say you're entering the green belt, welcome to the green belt, and signs when you exit. They also encourage people to go out into those areas and support farmers by doing things like creating a bicycle trail all the way through the Greenbelt area that connects up those farms, creating walking trails that connect up the farms. And this is government funded work. So this is not a charitable organisation that's doing this. This is a significant amount of government funding, which is going into actively promoting the viability of farming in those areas by taking city residents, encouraging them out into these areas to just see for themselves how important they are and to engage with farmers and the fantastic food that is produced in those areas. Another thing that happens around Toronto is that they have a provenance label called Greenbelt Fresh, which we put onto food produced from that area, which then tells consumers that the food is from the area around the city and they can choose to support local farmers by buying that food if they want to. Another thing that many cities actually do, not just those cities, but particularly many cities through the United States and parts of Europe, is that they have procurement standards for food that is bought for city services like prisons or hospitals, schools, kindergartens, where there are standards, A, for actually buying food that's healthy, food that has been sustainably produced, but also food that is locally grown. So why not support your local farmers? Why not support farmers in the state by ensuring that when you're buying food for government services, you preference buying food from your local farmers? We haven't used those sorts of mechanisms as much in Australia to date. And I think they can be incredibly powerful, especially as part of that post-COVID-19 recovery. It seems to me a fairly obvious win-win way to go, really. We get great fresh food from local farmers for government services, and we're supporting our farmers. So I think there's a lot that we can do if we just start to think about this a bit differently by looking to some of these other cities, which are really focused on not just how we can grow and export a lot of food. And of course, that's seen as being quite important for the economy, but actually just start to look at our own domestic food systems and food supply chain and growing that domestic market. And that's going to require thinking about how we strengthen and rebuild our local and regional food supply chains. We have fantastic supply chains at the moment. We've done a lot of work at making sure that you can bring food from anywhere in the world to almost anywhere else, right? So these incredibly sophisticated, complex supply chains, but actually we don't have very good systems for getting locally produced food to local residents. So if you're out in the Mornington Peninsula and you go into a supermarket and you want to buy locally grown strawberries, then quite possibly those strawberries have gone all the way out from from the Mornington Peninsula into a central supermarket area. And then they have come all the way back out to the Mornington Peninsula again. So they've done a very long journey. We just don't have good 
ways of getting locally produced food to local people. And so we need to work on that. We need to find ways beyond farmers markets, beyond box schemes of ensuring that it's easy for people to recognise and to buy locally produced food. Staying in America, another thing that I understand that they do is that their agriculture and their food parts of the government are actually intertwined, whereas here they're quite separate. Is that something that we could explore as a country and might help us? Yes, that's a really good point. So in a country like the United States, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, they, in terms of their policy remit and the things they're looking at, of course, they're focused on agriculture and agricultural policy, but they're also focused on um, food systems and food systems policy. So they have policy that is dedicated to growing local and regional food systems and supporting those sorts of supply chains. So, for instance, there's a lot of work that goes, a lot of funding that goes into establishing food hubs. So food hubs where small to medium scale farmers can bring their crops in, they can be aggregated and then sold on to bigger buyers, whether that be government buyers or other buyers. And so that's one example of strengthening those local and regional food supply chains. They do a very good job of that. Now, if we look at our government policy in relation to food, there's no one government area that's actually responsible for food. There's no government area that looks at the food system. We have multiple different government departments that would take actions that influence the food system in different ways. But often the implications or consequence of those actions on the food system aren't considered. And so we need to have a whole of government approach to food policy, where we're bringing together different policy portfolios influence the food system into a common sort of approach. There's different ways of doing that. You know, one is to have a particular department that is, is responsible for food. Another is to have a government committee or other mechanism that brings these things together. But I think that we do need to have a state food strategy or policy. We need to have clear, integrated national food policy as well. And that's something that we're not doing especially well at the moment, and we need to be doing more. And there's a real international emphasis on this now. So we had the United Nations Food Systems Summit last year. There's a lot more emphasis on just building food systems and thinking in an integrated way about food. When we're looking at the current global food price crisis that we're facing at the moment, there's a lot of emphasis on looking at that in an integrated systems-based way so we can see all the different influences on those food prices and think about how to address them. So I think that we really need to see much more integrated whole-of-government food policy. And that's going to be really important if we're going to do the kind of food resilience planning that we need to do to ensure that our food systems are much stronger and much more resilient in the face of these increasing shocks and stresses that we now see in our food systems. We have such a strong foodie culture. I'm in Adelaide and it's definitely something that within the last 10 or 15 years has really grown and Melbourne very famous for its foodie culture. How can we better connect to our producers as lovers of food? I think it can be quite difficult for people, but what I would encourage people to do is wherever you can, seek out your local food producers, try to connect with them at places like farmers market, if you can get to them, 
through local box schemes. Sometimes there are fruit and vegetable box schemes or meat box schemes where you can buy directly from farmers. And we do that. We're giving farmers a greater share of our food retail dollar that goes straight to the farmer. So it's a great idea to do that wherever you can. And another way, I guess, is by thinking about buying some of those odd misshapen kind of fruit and vegetables that you see as well to ensure that that helps farmers sell the whole crop so that they're not losing a part of their crop because of the very strict standards that sometimes the supermarkets introduce about the way that produce needs to look, its size and its shape. So go looking for other forms of produce that are going to support farmers in selling the whole crop. Look out for locally produced foods. Start looking on the backs of tins of things, the backs of frozen foods as well. Look at where they're from. Where are they made? Although a lot of our fresh produce actually comes from Australia, then a lot of the processed food, in fact, doesn't. And that would include processed fruit and vegetables as well. Just start looking at and asking questions about where your food comes from. But take opportunities to connect with local farmers wherever you can. Going out into those farming areas as well, just exploring those farming areas on the fringe of your city, getting to know them. Sometimes they can be quite hidden areas that people are not always aware of, but that are really important to food production on the fringe of the city. We often know about the iconic ones, like around Melbourne, we know about the Yarra Valley, or we know about places like Moynton Peninsula, but we don't all know about places like Cardinia or Casey or Wyndham and how important they are to our food production. So let's get out and all explore those areas. I could talk about food all day. So this has been a really great episode for me and a couple of new spots to explore when I'm next in Melbourne. But before we wrap up today, Rachel, we probably have a little bit of a question from left field for you. And it's a question that we ask all of our guests when they come on the podcast. And perhaps you'll need to cast your mind back to your gap year or maybe some more recent time spent out on farm. But when you are out on farm, what boots do you wear? Wow. Look, I would be struggling to tell you the name of a boot, but I remember wearing some quite odd boots when I was up on the cattle stations, of course, I was a backpacker at that point, so I didn't have especially good boots with me. I was reliant on whatever boots I could find around. Yeah, look, I'm a bit of a city slicker, unfortunately, so I don't have the best collection of boots. But I do have a very old pair that I have set aside for going out onto farms and don't tend to use for another purpose, but they're very old and not especially memorable pair of boots. <laughs> It's fascinating hearing everyone's response to that question. And we've had all kinds of answers like thongs. I don't wear boots, I wear thongs. So <laughs> the fact you've got a pair of boots set aside is nothing out of the ordinary for us. But thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today, Rachel. It's been fantastic. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert and I'll chat to you next time.